Frequently, when I am negotiating a professional service agreement for a client and I'm dealing with a non-healthcare attorney representing a physician, the attorney will ask for the master list reference in the contract to be deleted as not necessary. Well, this episode, I will explain when and why a master list reference is necessary for Stark Law compliance. Captain Integrity Production and the law firm of Nelson Mullins presents Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. Stark Integrity explores the world of the Stark Law and healthcare compliance with our nationally recognized Stark Law, Fraud, and Compliance Attorney, Bob Wade. Bob has a national healthcare legal and compliance practice that focuses on the minions of the Anti-Kickback Statute, False Claims Act, and the Stark Law, including fair market value and commercial reasonableness. Although Bob is a law partner in the national law firm of Nelson Mullins, the views expressed in Stark Integrity are Bob's personal views and not the views of the firm, and they are not intended to be legal advice. Now, without further ado... I give you Captain Integrity, Bob Wade. Welcome to Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. My name is Bob Wade and I am your host. Actually, this episode was suggested by a listener to Stark Integrity. And so this is just to emphasize for the Stark Integrity listeners, if you have a unique issue for the Stark Law, the False Claims Act, and a kickback statute compliance that you would like to hear about in in Stark Integrity, uh, please email me and I'd be happy to either address that issue or find someone who I can interview. So again, this one originated from a question from a listener. And what they really wanted to know is why is the master list reference uh, under the Stark Law necessary and what can we tell attorneys or physicians uh, who don't regularly deal with healthcare, regulatory, legal issues why a master list cross-reference in agreement is necessary. Because when you look at it on its face, most corporate contracts, let's say that you're entering into a professional services agreement and you are a manufacturer of tires and you wanted to have a service of, let's say, a scientist uh, to come in and to evaluate the rubber that was being used in the tire manufacturing process. Well, those independent contractor agreements would not have a, a master list cross-reference uh, in them to other arrangements that the tire manufacturer may have either with that scientist or an immediate family member of that scientist. But under the Stark Law, again, I've said in Stark Integrity many, many times that healthcare is different from other industries because of the unique nature of the laws, rules, and regulations. So as we're dealing with financial arrangements with referral sources, and all referral sources are applicable under the anti-kickback statute, or specifically between a referring physician and a designated health service entity like a laboratory or a hospital, then the anti-kickback statute and the Stark Law would be applicable, and the unique provisions that are required under those statutes will need to be considered, and if they're required to be in the written agreement signed by the parties, then it should be in the written agreement signed by the parties. 
Well, before you get there, uh, one of my wife's favorite musicals is The Sound of Music. And uh, Julie Andrews has the song about let's start at the very beginning. And so the, the key phrase at the beginning of this song in The Sound of Music by Julie Andrews says, let's start at the very beginning. It's a very good place to start. When you read, you begin with ABC. And when you sing, you begin with Do, Re, Mi. Well, when doing a Stark Law analysis and when we want to understand the historical perspective as to why these provisions exist, and sometimes you just have to roll your eyes and say, well, that's Medicare or Medicaid or that's the OIG or that's CMS, and not everything they do makes logical sense. That may be one answer. But sometimes you can actually dig into the history of why certain provisions under the Stark Law and Anti-Kickback Statute are required. So if we're going to start at the very beginning, as all Stark Integrity listeners know, if you've been through a lot of the episodes in Stark Integrity, that Stark started with a statute. It's a simple statute. That's why we say we start at the very beginning. And then uh, the statute basically says that the administration through regulations can further define or to add you know, meat to the bone, so to speak, uh, with respect to the statute. So a lot of times you need to go back to the statute and say, okay, was this exception a statutorily created exception or was the exception a regulatory created exception? And where this issue lies, and actually it lies in, in two exceptions, and one is new, which is not statutory, and that's the community-wide health information systems, which I will get to, but that's one of the exceptions. But the most widely used exception that this would apply to would be the personal service arrangement exception. And again, this was statutorily created. Uh, again, just a, as a refresher, Stark was introduced by Peter Stark in 1989, and it became effective in January 1 of 1992. So the personal service arrangement exception was one of the statutorily created exceptions. And the provision that I'm going to focus on uh, in this exception is the Romanet 2 in the statute, where it says if you have a personal services arrangement, quote, the arrangement covers all of the services to be provided by the physician, paren, or an immediate family member of such physician, close paren, to the entity, close quote. So to comply with the statutory exception that became effective in January 1 of 1992, that all of the services to be provided by the physician or the family member must be contained in the written arrangement between the parties. So that was inferred that if you have any type of relationship with this physician or immediate family member, that all of the arrangements have to be cross-referenced in the written agreement signed by the parties. So that was created by statute. And I think uh, going back and looking at a little bit of the history of this, it's, it's so uh, the government can audit. I think that's one aspect. They go in and, and they can see one agreement and if they pull up the agreement and they see cross-references to other arrangements between the physician or an immediate family member, then that gives them a good roadmap to audit all of the other applicable financial arrangements. 
But also, it helps out from a compliance perspective that if you are the, uh, the, the designated health service entity or the physician, then if you have these cross-references to all the other arrangements that you have with physicians in one contract, it's easier to monitor and to identify those arrangements uh, from a compliance perspective. Now, I've said this in Stark Integrity before, that it's, you can't really just look at each individual financial arrangement that you have with a referring physician in isolation. You need to be looking at the aggregate of all of the financial arrangements that you have with the physician to determine whether or not the aggregate is representative of fair market value and maybe even more importantly, that the aggregate is commercially reasonable, meaning that the doctor can really perform all the duties and responsibilities from these various financial arrangements that the DHS entity may have with the referring physician. So again, as, as a point of reference, this was contained in the professional services arrangement exception adopted by statute in 1992. And we trucked along for a few years up until the phase one regulations, which were issued on January 4, 2001. Again, January 4, 2001. So from 1992 to 2001, we were living with the statutory definition of what was required under the personal services arrangement exception. So CMS received comments in the phase one regulations and they published those again in January 4 of 2001 in the federal register and they received comments. Well, the first comment said that there are arrangements where there are no written agreements. So it's hard to really identify those written agreements because again, it says that, uh, that the written arrangement this is a statutory requirement. The written arrangement has to cover all of the services provided by the physician. So this commenter in 2001 was saying, well, if you have a, an employment agreement under the Stark Law, the employment agreement does not need to be in writing and signed by the parties. So it's hard to cross-reference a written agreement for other services when the written agreement does not exist. Secondly, uh, a commenter indicated that the arrangements, the multiple arrangements the hospital or DHS entity have with the referring physicians could change from time to time. So it may be valid on the date that you sign the agreement. Let's say you have four different financial arrangements with the referring physician. You enter into a professional services agreement and you cross-reference all of the other four financial arrangements. You're good as of that date. Let's say a year and a half later, you sign another agreement. Now you have five additional arrangements and the arrangement that you entered into previously is no longer valid because the cross-references are not valid. So uh, the comment was that we could be changing the number of financial and types of financial arrangements from time to time. And lastly, a uh, comment was that uh, this was a burden on behalf of the DHS entities. Uh, first off, the, the person indicated uh, through this comment that if CMS ever wanted to have all of these financial arrangements reported, that the DHS entity was obligated under the Stark Law to provide a list to CMS regarding all of these arrangements anyway. And so this commenter said, well, instead of identifying every single financial arrangement and put those into every single contract, it would be better that you just cross-reference a master list. And so this was contained in the comments. And you know, again, this is 2001. They said, nevertheless, and this is the quote from the regulations, 
We note that cross-referencing other agreements and arrangements is a good practice and will enable contracting entities as well as auditors to review more efficiently the full scope of a physician's relationship to the entity. However, in 2001, they did not incorporate the master list cross-reference yet. So that brings us to the phase two regulations. Again, we've had a series of regulations. We had phase one, phase two, phase three, and most recently what they call the final rules. I don't think they're final, but that's what they call them. Uh, so in 2004, in the phase two regulations, they said that, this is CMS speaking, is that uh, they, they are agreeing that you can either incorporate the cross-reference to other agreements into your professional services agreement, or, and this is the first time that they're saying from a regulatory perspective, that you can cross-reference a master list. And they even went into a lot of detail you know, regarding what is the master list. Because first off, some people said that by each DHS entity, that only one master list had to exist. Well, if you have a decentralized organization, or let's say that you have you know, one entity that owns multiple hospitals, then maybe every single hospital is going to have their own master list, and that could be consolidated and reported up to the parent corporation. So they were saying that you could have multiple lists, and then so the contracting could be by a department, and there could be more than one centralized repository for this data. And in order to, to decrease the issues that, that were identified in the phase one regulations, they basically said that you could have this master list as long as there is a cross-reference in the written agreement to the master list. So this goes back to my teaser at the beginning of this episode. And that is if you have a, just a general business attorney that's saying, you know, this master list cross-reference is really not necessary my client, the physician, uh, does not have access to that master list. So we have no idea what's in that master list. And they could advocate, let's remove the reference to the master list because it does not apply to my client, the physician. Well, if you're representing the DHS entity, you would have to say, well, that is one of the requirements under the personal service arrangement exception. And we need to fit within that exception, possibly, uh, for this financial arrangement. I said possibly because you could fit within the fair market value exception. And that exception does not require the cross-referencing of the uh, master list or the other arrangements. Now, the reason why I pull that out is the fair market value exception was not a statutorily regulated or was not a statutory created exception. It was regulatorily created. And so CMS, when they issued the fair market value exception, they did not incorporate the cross-reference of the other arrangements like the statute did when it was first became effective in January of 1992. So in a nutshell, and I'll probably handle this in the Captain Integrity Punch Points, is that the referencing of a master list rose out of regulations, and that's because of the statute required there to be a referencing of all other services provided by the physician or family members. So to fulfill that requirement by statute, CMS through regulations modified that exception by allowing DHS entities to reference a master list versus cross-referencing every single financial arrangement that they had with the physician in a singular contract. 
Now for the rest of this episode up to the Captain Integrity Punch Points, I just wanted to talk a little bit about the administrative burden that CMS believes are is, is imposed uh, based upon this master list. Uh, usually through regulations, CMS will have to identify what they believe to be the burden that they are imposing upon the industry. Uh, they, in the burden section of the phase two regulations, again, phase two is March 26 of 2004. Uh, that's where the master list re uh, cross-reference first appeared. Uh, they basically said, and I'll give this as a quote, the quote, master list, end quote, alternative should impose minimal, if any, burden because it is a usual and customary business practice for a company to maintain records of its contracts. However, for those entities without a master list, multiple lists or databases, creating a master list will take time. So we, they, are, they were requesting in the 2004 Phase 2 regulations for comments. But they went on to try to calculate the burden that this was going to place on the industry. So now I'm going to throw some numbers at you. And if you're driving, you may want to go back down and write these numbers down or go to the Phase 2 regulations in 2004. And this will be in the burden section of those regulations. They indicated in the burden section that they believe that there at that time was 677,002 healthcare entities, which were comprised of 58,110 physician entities, 6,018 hospitals, and 612,874 other entities. And they estimated of that 677,000 healthcare entities, only one quarter of those entities or 169,251 contract for personal services with physicians or their immediate family members. So they only believe only 25% of the healthcare entities that existed at that time actually involved contractual relationships between DHS entities like hospitals and physicians or their immediate family members. I think that's kind of low. And they went on to estimate that for a large entity, in order to meet the requirement of gathering all the documentation and putting the documentation of all of their financial arrangements into a master list, that it would take, and hold on tight to this, <laughs> seven hours, only seven hours to meet this requirement. And if you were a small entity, and they don't, do not define what a small entity, it would only take you two hours to create this master list. And in 2004, they believe that only one half of the 169,000 entities that would have personal services arrangement would be affected by this requirement and had to create a master list. So they believe that 50% of the organizations had a master list, and these are organizations that have personal services arrangements. So in the aggregate, for these 169,251 entities that uh, it would take about 677,000 hours to create the master list for all of these entities. And then, and again, I think everybody hold tight to this, they believe in order to, quote, maintain the master list, it would only take about a half an hour annually for small entities and up to, it would take about one hour annually for larger entities in order to update the master list. So they believe collectively, again, this is back in 2004, the hours to update the master list would only take about uh, 127,000 hours. Now, 
As everyone know, knows in Stark Integrity, I was the general counsel and the integrity officer for a hospital system. This was back in the late 90s. And I walked into the organization and they did not have a master list. And so we had contracts buried in multiple departments. And, and you know, this is a kind of a medium-sized hospital. So it's not one of these mega-sized hospitals, nor was it by any stretch of the imagination a small hospital. I hired a paralegal, and she spent literally a year locating all of our documents and trying to get them into a master list. And back in that time, we were doing it through Excel. Uh, so I believe that their estimation of it would only take an organization seven hours if you're larger or two hours if you're smaller is a gross underestimation of the hours taken. And also, I guess, you know, with respect to these master lists, if you review corporate integrity agreements and the requirement of the entities or the uh, physicians who are entering into these CIAs, one of the requirements is to have a centralized depository of all the contracts and financial arrangements, i.e. a master list. So that's the historical perspective of the master list and why it is required. So this brings us to the three Captain Integrity Punch Points for this episode. Captain Integrity Punch Point number one is creating a master list or a centralized depository is just good practice. If your organization does not have such a list or a centralized depository that you can actually search for documents, especially their termination dates, their compensation rates, etc., uh, you should you should get one. Captain Integrity Punch Point number two, it is a legal requirement uh, that you either cross-reference all of the financial arrangements that you have with a referring physician or their immediate family members, or you cross-reference the master list in order to comply with two exceptions under the Stark Law, the personal services arrangement exception, as well as the community-wide health information system exception. So for those that are dealing with non-healthcare lawyers, our pushback is it is legally mandated since we are a DHS entity that we cross-reference the master list. And Captain Integrity Punch Point number three, and I've said this quite frequently in Stark Integrity, the podcast, you need to dedicate resources in order to maintain a master list to make it vibrant so you can monitor your physician financial arrangements. That is going to be one of the first areas that uh, people should be turning to in order to ensure that, number one, they've identified the universe of the financial arrangements, but also have the key components of those financial arrangements in the master list, like the start date, the termination date, or the ending date, the compensation terms, uh, etc. And usually these databases or depositories or repositories, they have all of the, uh, the information, including the fair market value and the commercial reasonableness documentation that is contained in this repository. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. If you have any questions regarding this episode, the Stark Law, or healthcare compliance, you can contact me at bobwadecaptainintegrity at gmail.com or my law firm email address at bob.wade at nelsonmullins.com. You can review this and any other episode of Stark Integrity at the Captain Integrity website at captainintegrity.com. You can also follow me on LinkedIn under Bob Wade. I hope the three Captain Integrity Punch Points will help you with the Stark Law and compliance. In closing, remember that integrity depends on you and me.